This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 580, and we are delighted to welcome Howard Brickman for the fifth in our series on the moist, from the Moisture Mob. And uh, the Moisture Mob series is going real well. This week, we plan on focusing on hardwood and uh, hardwood flooring issues and look forward to a great conversation with Howard. Before we get started, let's thank our IAQ Radio sponsors. They are the reason we continue to be able to do the show for free. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Calla, CIH. North Carolina Department of Transportation, who was first to identify beta coronavirus as the genus to which the COVID-19 coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 belong. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, April 3rd, 2020, has been sponsored by IDEA is a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor, odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. What is rule number 229 of the Hammurabi Code? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. So the, the show this week is hardwood flooring from the trees, uh, treetops to the roots, an intimate fireside chat with an industry trailblazer. Howard uh, Brickman has been a charter member of the National Wood Flooring Association and served for years as the manager for inspections and school services for NOFMA. He has consulted on or been contracted for many high-profile custom installations, such as the Great Hall in Boston's famous tourist attraction, Fanu Hall. I hope I got that right. Howard is a self-described carpenter in overalls and served as a technical consultant for well-known home improvement TV show, with Bob Vila called home again. Howard, welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. Thank you, Joe. It's great to have you. Great to have a fellow Woody. I, uh, I've got a little construction company on the side here. My son's a carpenter. He uh, loves to work with wood, although lately I get 
we get fewer and fewer people actually installing hardwood floors anymore, Howard. How, how do you see the industry in general? Are things slowing down, picking up, or are the other alternatives uh, kind of hurting hardwood? Um, I, generally speaking, uh, 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 since the 1960s, when hardwood actually had like a 96% market share, uh, we've gone down. 1978, 77, 79 was the low point in the wood floor business. And we've been on a steady growth climb curve since then. I think we're up to maybe a 12 or 14% market share at this point, maybe a little bit more. You'll see a lot of lookalike products. Um, they're photographically reproduced pictures, uh, um, representations, uh, printing of wood structure on surfaces of even ceramic tile now. So it's kind of interesting to see people want a real wood floor, but oftentimes there are limitations on performance related to hard use in a wet area, which would be ideal for ceramic. And then cost is also an issue. Uh, so a lot of the floor covering options uh, uh, with uh, vinyl and uh, um, and the Pergo type material uh, are also, they, they look like a wood floor, but they're not a real wood floor in that they can't be refinished, sanded and refinished and and have the typical life of the building life cycle. Yeah, the, the hardwood floor is more of a, a life of the building kind of thing where a lot of these other products, uh, you know, they may, they're not going to get you the life of the building, let's put it that way. Except for maybe the ceramic, obviously, that would work well. It certainly uh, is, is an option. In fact, a lot of people don't really realize that in 19... Up until 1960-something, um, uh, if you wanted to have your flooring, floor covering included into the realty in your mortgage, in other words, if you wanted to, when you bought a piece of property, a new house, everything had to have a life of the building uh, structure or, or um, a utility cycle. So, for instance, carpet couldn't be included in the, in the, in the mortgage. For FHA and VA loans. Uh, and so uh, lobbyists went to Washington and they changed that. And that was the start of the downfall of the wood floor business because wood flooring and ceramic and stone were the only floor coverings that were, and, and battleship linoleum, were the only floor coverings that were considered life of the structure for 20 plus years. And that's where you also get the the 20-year the, the uh, shingle designation. In other words, you couldn't include anything in the realty, so the appliances weren't included. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, uh, that was all, those regulations were all revised in 60. And, uh, um, and so appliances and carpet and all kinds of other materials were included into the mortgage you know, I think one of the other things that, that has, has hurt hardwood over the years is maybe, and maybe it's a misconception on, on some people's part, but hardwood is a green product. I mean, it's, it's grown, it's, it's grown pretty quickly these days. And um, I think it's something that if, if we harvest it and um, to, do, do right by the environment, it can be considered green. Would you agree? I would agree. I mean, uh, uh, I'm not a big advocate for a lot of the environmental uh, 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 
uh, uh, mysticism. However, um, if carbon capturing is a is an effective real possibility, every piece of wood that you put into a building and and keep it functioning as part of the building so it does not deteriorate is going to capture that carbon in the structure of the cellulose. It's interesting. A lot of people don't really understand this. That, that, that there's there's probably not a lot of difference in emissions between burning wood or letting it simply deteriorate and, and rot uh, in the woods. Hmm. So essentially going out into the, into the forest, managing the forest properly and taking that lumber, that, that timber, turning it into lumber and then putting it into structures and, and giving it a, extending its life indefinitely uh, actually takes a lot of carbon out of circulation. Interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the maintenance of of these hardwood floors. Actually, the installation, starting with installation and acclimation. Um, any tips for people who are putting in hardwood floors on acclimation of the hardwood to the environment they're getting ready to put it into? That's critical, Joe. Um, uh, most of us, uh, 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 most people in the construction and the wood floor business don't really understand the acclimation process and they've kind of got it backwards. So when we make lumber into, when we make timber into lumber and dry it, we're drying it to specific moisture contents to optimize its function in the interior of a building after it's occupied. So what happens is uh, we oftentimes in new construction, especially, we end up with an interior environment or conditions of the interior that are not at occupancy levels. For instance, maybe the exterior isn't perfectly tight. Maybe if the interior materials haven't been dried. Here again, for, for your audience, the drying people, why you're not out there drying new construction, I will never understand it because that eliminates probably 97 to 90% of the punch list that's gonna occur on any new construction. Getting that building interior framing dry prior to insulating and putting the drywall on is gonna prevent so much shrinkage and movement in a building. However, uh, the acclimation process really should be focused on the building, on the interior environment. So the, the optimum things for interior condition measurement is a moisture meter and a moisture meter uh, is going to measure the moisture content in the actual subfloor and the other wood-based building components. And what about uh, temperature, humidity? How much do they affect that environment? And what do you recommend as parameters for those? I'm not a, uh, here again, I'm kind of an outlier. Um, I know that um, uh, it's very difficult to control the exterior air mass. In other words, the air mass in the, in, in, in the atmosphere above the earth is not something we can control. And that's probably the primary thing that drives interior relative humidity. Because the HVA systems, HVAC systems, and, and almost every building that's built are temperature-based. So uh, we're controlling temperature with HVAC. We're really not managing interior re relative humidity. 
So in the winter, we get a very, in where the heat is operating, we get a very dry interior climate. In the summer, if the HVAC is not optimized for dehumidification, in other words, if it's not optimized for almost a continuous running, uh, you're going to have an interior environment with a relatively high relative humidity. So essentially, um, um, worrying about interior relative humidity is, is interesting, but it isn't always very effective because there's a lot of things that we just are not able to do in most interiors of most buildings. We don't have the equipment installed in the HVAC to manage it properly, and we don't have the instrumentation and sensors to even measure it. So where do you see the, how do you see the restoration guys, as you mentioned earlier, assisting with that, ensuring that those um, building components are drying properly? Are they just doing the measurement with the moisture meters or do you recommend they get involved with some of the heating and, and dehumidification efforts? Well, dehumidification is, is, I think, critical in the summertime, and especially in the more humid climates, which is everything kind of east, east of the Mississippi. Uh, you know, that when you get on the downrange side of the arid part of the, uh, uh, of the western continental divide, and you get into the elevations below 1,000 feet, we start to get into that eastern forest and plains uh, where there's a lot of rainfall. Uh, there's a very high humidity in the summertime. The air mass is loaded with moisture. And if we let that, if we let that moisture infiltrate into our buildings, we're going to end up with some pretty high relative humidities because essentially today we're cooling our buildings. So as you know, there's an inverse relationship between temperature and relative humidity. As you decrease temperature, you increase relative humidity. As you increase temperature, you decrease relative humidity. So temperature up, relative humidity down. Temperature down, relative humidity up. And so uh, unless you're doing something uh, uh, specific to removing relative humidity, the most effective way of managing it with our current HVAC systems is to increase the temperature which of course we don't want to do in the summertime because we don't want to be sitting there in our underwear uh, sweating because it's 95 degrees in the house, but it's at a 40% relative humidity. We want, we want to manage temperature and relative humidity at the same time, unfortunately, the majority of the HVAC. So that's where the IAQ and the water and the drying people really are critical in a construction process because wood-based materials are very slow to pick up and, and lose their moisture. So when you get that, that drying technology and you bring it into a new construction, you dry that frame out and it's gonna stay dry unless there's some very extreme conditions. It's gonna stay dry throughout the remainder of the construction process if the interior of the building is managed properly, like you know keeping the windows closed, having a roof that doesn't leak, that kind of thing. Okay, interesting. How about um, finishes? How are finishes affected by water intrusion? And, and do you have any techniques that we can use to uh, assess the damage and then decide if a floor can be restored or has to be replaced? I know it's a pretty big question, but it's one that our listeners deal with a lot. 
I'll focus on the flooring part of it, uh, 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 but the technology is similar uh, uh, to to all the other interior finishes. So uh, with the flooring, uh, the most the most effective, the the most accurate way to measure moisture content is the oven test, and that's the actual definition of moisture content. Moisture content is the weight of the water contained in a material compared to its oven dry weight with zero moisture content. And, and oven, the oven test is pretty self-explanatory. You take a sample, you weigh it, you put it in an oven, uh, uh, preferably something like a convection oven at little over 212 degrees. And in, within 24 to 48 hours on smaller samples, uh, it'll be totally oven dry. You weigh it a second time, and then you compare the, the water loss, the weight loss, to its oven dry weight, and that's actual moisture content. So um, obviously we can't do oven testing on materials that are passing into a building because it would be destructive. So we're gonna use moisture meters. The two primary methods of measuring moisture content with moisture meters are the uh, penetrating meter, which is essentially two electrodes that we insert into the material, those electrodes measure the conductivity or resistance between the two electrodes. And there's a very strong correlation between that resistance value and the moisture content. Uh, on alternate technology, which is not gonna leave you little pinholes, is a surface meter. Those surface meters are placed on a smooth surface. They're activated. They send an electronic signal out and they measure uh, either a signal loss or some type of return signal, and then there's a correlation between that and the other. So if you're doing a survey, a quick survey on a moisture loss, the first thing you want to use, uh, the very first thing you want to use is uh, take that moisture meter that's a surface meter and do a quick survey. So you can take that and you can get a really great relative reading in area area and no and locate your hot spots, your or I should say wet spots versus hot spots. <laughs> and um, uh, and so when you locate your high intensity water locations, then you can actually start to focus on actual moisture content, which is where the the pen meter really excels. When you want a, a more accurate reading below fiber saturation point, which is around twenty eight to thirty percent, you want to go with a pen meter. So start with the surface meter uh, and then work your way to the pin meter. And you can, I guess you can do like a comparison of how your surface meter is reading versus your pin meter and then make a, a quick conversion over from, uh, from one to the other. I'm not sure that that's all that useful. Um, yeah. I, think th I think they're two separate technologies. Uh, they both have a very important function. Uh, that surface meter, you can you can do hundreds of readings very quickly. You can you can basically set up your surfaces on a grid pattern, and you can be measuring every two or three feet. Get a really good sense as to where the moisture is. Once you've gridded it and plotted it and located it, then you can focus on actually determining you know where what the numbers are. Of course, you always want to, when you're drying, you always want to be pulling into your moisture area. You don't want to be 
drying in a way that pushes moisture out of the wet spot and then causes further damage on the other part of the building. You mentioned that saturation was about 28%, I believe. What, what's your goal as far as getting the moisture content of hardwood floors down to prior to installation and, of course, the subfloor as well? Okay, so we go into new construction or, or when we're even working in an older building. We want to be at a certain moisture content level that's pretty much driven by the climate in the area where we live. For instance, I live south of Boston in the suburbs. It's the same climate that we have throughout the Northeast. Um, high humidity in the summer and very low interior relative humidities in the wintertime. The average interior moisture content the Goldilocks number for moisture content in the interiors in the Northeast is seven and a half to eight percent. So, in a perfect world, we would want the subfloor to be at seven and a half to eight percent because it's changes in moisture content that drive shrinking and swelling and shape changes in, in lumber. So, I, in a perfect world, we would say, hey, listen. We want to maintain this absolute perfect condition. And that doesn't really exist unless you're in museums and highly uh, developed uh, building envelopes that don't allow incursion of moisture and places with very robust HVAC with controls and computerized. And uh, uh, so, but that doesn't exist in the buildings we build for 99% of the buildings that we have to work with. So essentially we're, we're, we're looking at, if say for instance in the Northeast, I would like my subfloor to be at or below 11%, okay? And the higher the moisture content, the increased level of risk associated with uh, the flooring picking up moisture. Because when you put the two surfaces together, when you put that, Kill dried wood flooring, which is basically kill dried to an average moisture content of seven and a half percent. And you put that in contact with a piece of subfloor that's at 10%, it's going to start to adsorb moisture from that subfloor at the surfaces. And so, uh, uh, as long as we're not absorbing it too quickly at too fast a rate, we should be fine. Uh, so, uh, essentially, in the Northeast, we want the subfloor to be at or below uh, 11. And I say, let's, let's, I might as well give a, uh, uh, instead of a, uh, you can get by with this standard, let's, let's look at a gold standard, okay? Okay. And so, the gold standard is subfloor needs to be 10% or less. Let's go out to Denver, uh, Phoenix. Las Vegas, the arid part of the country where equilibrium moisture levels are much lower, you probably want your subfloor at or below 7%. Okay. And now let's go down to our more humid areas, uh, uh, Gulf Coast, Florida, um, uh, New Orleans, uh, uh, Miami, Tampa. We want the subfloor to be in the range of uh, 13% or less. And, and, and so that's where the acclimation thing comes in. The wood flooring for the most of the United States is really made 
to be used at its, at its manufactured moisture content. So, so the best case scenario is when you bring that, say in Boston or New York or Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or Washington DC or Columbus, Ohio, when you bring that wood floor into a building, the, the very best that can happen is that you don't mess it up, okay? There's nothing really good you're gonna do to that flooring uh, um, by bringing it into a building, especially if the building doesn't have good interior relative humidity controls, okay? So your first thing is subfloor is dry. You can bring the material in. You don't really need to let it acclimate because acclimating, um, um, uh, I was going to look this up before this thing and I got distracted with life. And, and if someone is uh, looking up on their computer what the actual definition of acclimating is. And I think acclimating is a kind of a hillbilly way of talking about equilibrating, okay? Okay. Because people acclimate to their surroundings, right? It's in other right. words, it's an adjustment. And most of us have a way of uh, anthropomorphizing inanimate objects, okay? By this I mean we think our flooring is alive. It's not alive, it's a piece of wood. In fact, in a living tree, a live tree, that structure in the tree, that center of the tree, is not live cells. That, that center of a live tree is, is essentially cells that were at one point alive and now they're dead. So the, 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 that, that language that talks about wood being alive and blah, blah, blah is really kind of inaccurate. Wood shrinks and swells. It shrinks and swells in relation to the conditions to which it's exposed. And when it reaches equilibrium, it stops changing moisture content. And when it stops changing moisture content, it stops changing dimension. Okay. Uh, let me, Cliff, I want to make sure I get you a shot. Uh, if you want to ask any technical questions before we go into some of the more industry-related issues. No, I'm good, Joe. I'm still All right. Good. Let me ask this. Um, cupping and crowning of boards. A lot of our restoration contractors run into that issue. They get called in. There's been a water damage of some type. It may not even be on that particular floor itself. But first, can you tell us the difference between cupping and crowning and then give some tips on whether or not that can be fixed? Okay. So cupping and crowning are, are words we use to describe whether the surface is concave for cupping or convex for crowning. So cupping is like this, crowning is like this, okay? So cupping is typically related to a, an asymmetry or a difference in moisture content between the two surfaces of the, of the material. So when a board is concave on the face, it indicates that the face and the, and the underlying bottom of the flooring are at different moisture contents. That means that the face is drier than the bottom or the back is wetter than the top. Okay? And so uh, uh, in the wintertime, 
if the if the, if the heat comes on super fast, you could actually get some minor cupping if you're if you're really drying the surface of a finished floor. A finished floor is less likely to cup because the finish slows the rate of moisture exchange with the sur with the environment above it. Uh, this might be something that would happen in, with a new construction where the flooring is at a little bit higher moisture content. They blast the heat on or say for radiant heat, especially they put that radiant heat on and really put the, put heat the house up and you could actually get that kind of cupping. So, so cupping we normally, you know, as on a water loss situation, we're associating cupping with high moisture content between the flooring and the subfloor or in the subfloor. Uh, uh, a common source of cupping is high relative humidity moisture levels in a basement or crawl space. And those are typically um, building environment issues that are part of the way that the temperature and relative humidity is managed in those spaces that are essentially uncontrolled. If you, if you maintain the conditions in the crawl space that are identical with the conditions in the conditioned air above it, then you wouldn't have those issues. Um, now there's a, there's a special case of cupping that I'll just kind of, this is a secret in the wood floor business. So uh, please don't, don't tell my fellow wood floor people. It's a big one. Okay. In the winter time, when you're using engineered floors with a with a thicker wear surface, in other words, it's got a Baltic birch plywood and it's got a quarter quarter to five sixteenths of an inch wear layer, solid wear layer on top of it. That material uh, has a characteristic. I'm not going to say it's a defect. It's just it's it's like saying that uh, a tiger has claws. That's not a defect in the tiger. That's a characteristic of the tiger. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, um, uh, engineered flooring that's constructed with with plywood and a solid lamella glued to it has this characteristic where in the winter time, when the heat comes on, the face, the lamella, shrinks at a different rate than the plywood backing because they're di they're different materials, and so we get a phenomenon referred to as dry cupping. It's simply a characteristic of this type of engineered material. If you were to put a straight edge on the, in the individual pieces of dry, of dry cupped engineered flooring in the wintertime, and you were to take a feeler gauge or a taper gauge and measure the amount of cupping, it's typically ranges up, depending on width, of course, because shrinkage is proportional to width. Uh, so a wider board is going to cut more than a narrower board, but on narrow boards, you'd expect to see three or four thousandths of an inch on some wider boards, like seven or eight inches, you might see uh, 10 or 11 or 12 thousandths of an inch that will typically flatten back out again in the summertime. Okay. As, soon as, as soon as interior relative humidity is back up to 50 plus percent RH, the board is going to flatten back out again. Interesting. Let me let me go to um, when it doesn't flatten out on its own. What are you familiar with the techniques necessary to help assist in that flattening out? Is it something that can be fixed? Well, it's funny thing about materials. 
if you take something um, and bend it, you know, bend something and hold it in that bent position for a long enough period of time, it will actually conform to that shape. So those of you that have ever worked in an old building, uh, I, I live in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. We got buildings that and right now is this year is the 400th anniversary of the founding of the Plymouth uh, Colony in, hmm. in, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. 1620, it's 2020. So um, I have had the opportunity to work in some antique structures that were built in the mid to early 1600s. And um, those, those floors, those, those pine, those eastern white pine floors, they have, they have all these rolls and changes in shape and everything else. And, and if you were to actually take that board out of that floor, it would, it would have that shape. In other words, it wouldn't return to being a flat board again. It actually assumes that shape. So if a cupped floor stays cupped long enough, it will actually retain that shape. And so the, the standard for determining whether a floor is going to stay cupped is re we return it to its actual service moisture content. In other words, we dry the interior of the building and the subfloor to optimum service conditions. So uh, the Goldilocks number in the Northeast would be, we get that subfloor down to 10%, 11%. Then we can be pretty certain that that if it's still cupped, it's not going to it's not going to change shape anymore. Okay. And so then you can actually start to do your remediation, which is sand it flat uh, uh, and refinish it. Gotcha. What about the little black marks around nails? What what causes those, and is there any way to fix that? Um. Well, uh, it's it's essentially rust stains. So those black marks are essentially iron oxide, ferrous oxide, uh, where the water gets in, reacts with the iron, and uh, causes it to discolor around it. Uh, you'll see it commonly. There's a lot of the old 516 face nailed material. If that gets wet, uh, that's all been face nailed with thousands, thousands of nails. And so you see those little black spots all over the place. And so uh, the fix for that, uh, is to replace the flooring. There's no real way to remove that rust stain because what is porous, the staining is there long enough, it'll actually permeate in through the entire surface of the flooring. Now, let me ask you this. Let's go to a different substrate because there are times when people want hardwood flooring on top of concrete. Could be in a basement, could be just, you know, any, any concrete floor, subfloor. What are, what are the things to watch for with that type of application, Howard? Well, um, as with any substrate, subfloor, we're always worried about moisture. So uh, with concrete, it's really tough to predict what's going on in a piece of concrete. Uh, it's delivered in batches by a concrete truck. Uh, how much does a, does a ready mix truck carry? 10, 11, 12, 15 yards of cement covers uh, anywhere from what, six to 600 to 1,000 square feet. So uh, if you take a building that's 10,000 square feet 
you could have up to somewhere between 10 and 12 or 14 different loads of ready mix that comprise that substrate. And so uh, um, do they mix it all exactly the same in a perfect world? Yes, but you never know. Uh, and they also, the other variable with concrete is something they refer to as water to cement ratio. And so when we make concrete, we're using the Portland cement mixed with water to form a gel or a paste. And that is basically designed to stick everything together as it solidifies. And, and, and so the little particles kind of fill in with each other in this concrete this, this cement paste actually forms this into a synthetic stone. So um, where we have a high water to cement ratio, there's a potential for water droplets that uh, consolidate during the curing process to actually um, uh, end up with uh, little spaces in the concrete. And so these little spaces can hold water droplets or they can be places for the uh, uh, accumulation of high RH. So uh, essentially the safest way to do a wood floor over a concrete slab is, you know, basically put a barrier, some type of barrier over the concrete. Uh, we have all different ways of doing it today. Uh, be cautious about doing a, uh, I, I call it an all-in-one uh, adhesive. So the all-in-one adhesive is an adhesive that uh, adheres the flooring to the substrate, provides sound insulation, uh, also provides a moisture barrier, uh, walks your dog, and gets your coffee for you, okay? <laughs> and so... Uh, um, the problem with any of these all-in-one adhesives is that they have to be at a perfect thickness and uniform application level. And in the real world, um, you're not necessarily going to get that. And so if you're depending on a product warranty to protect you, to inoculate you from liability, uh, uh, most of the people who sell these all-in-one adhesives, I would let's say all of them, I don't know of anyone that doesn't, are going to have disclaimers related to the amount of thickness and the uniformity of the application of the adhesive. And so um, uh, if you don't have a perfect 100% install where there's adhesive stuck on the substrate and, the, and, and it's stuck on the bottom of the material and it's at the right thickness, they're going to turn your claim down. So, so what so, should we use? So, so essentially, there are some, some pretty good moisture barriers out there. Uh, uh, different manufacturers of adhesive have different systems. Uh, I've been a bona, I'm a bona fide, I'm a bona certified uh, professional uh, installer. And so I typically will normally use bona products whenever I'm doing something. And I'm not, I'm not getting paid by bona to mention their name. Maybe I'll get a free hat or something later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man, I, should, I should be wearing my bona hat, I guess, if I'm going to pitch their product. I'm really not pitching their product. I'm just saying they're one of the companies that sells the moisture barrier product 
and the adhesive that would go on top of it. So a typical prep on concrete would be you would grind the concrete to get all the schmutz off of it, all the, uh, all the sheetrock dust, all the paint drips, get the concrete surface clean, dry, and uh, uh, to where it has a very porous surface. And then you would apply the liquid moisture barrier, typically roll it on, uh, most of those moisture barriers are most effective if they're applied in the, at least the Bona in two applications. Okay. And once that, uh, uh, once that second application is dry with the Bona adhesive, you've got 48 hours to get a chemical bond. So essentially you've got 48 hours to complete the install. So you would actually, uh, uh, uh and the systems are designed to adhere together to one another. So the bonds that are formed are very, very strong. Okay. So, so if you're going to do a glue down, like an engineered floor on concrete, you would, you would do the prep on the surface. Then you do the, the liquid barrier. Then you do the adhesive. And the adhesive will actually, if it's spread uniformly and thickly, will actually enhance the moisture blocking characteristics. All right, Howard, what we'd like to do is I want to just thank our sponsors real quick. We're going to use the short version because we're running a little low on time. And then for the second half, I want to let Cliff uh, take the lead on some of the questions. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Howard Brickman with us today, the wood expert. And Cliff, I want to turn it over to you to start some uh, the second half. Thanks, Joe. Well, Howard, you know, in the first half, um, you know, towards the end of the discussion, you made it a point to uh, tell us that you are a Bona certified uh, installer. Uh, and I guess my question is about certification is, does a certification actually serve as a substitute for real experience, education, and competence? I heard, I, I saw, there was an email chain I was involved with and um, and I was, I, there, was a, there was a cute thing that was written on it. I should have written it down so I could read it back to you. But the gist of it is, just because I'm sitting in my garage and calling myself a Ferrari, that doesn't make me a Ferrari, okay? <laughs> All right. And so, and I could even have a Ferrari emblem on my forehead. Gotcha. doesn't make me a Ferrari. Okay? Right. And so, uh, I think certifications are nice. They, 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 they indicate a level of intent to learn something or at least uh, give the impression that you've learned something, okay? 
Okay. <laughs> but they are not in and of themselves substitutes for good experience, common sense, and being competent at what you do. In other words, the proof is kind of in the pudding. You either you is or you ain't. And right. being certified doesn't make it so. Uh, uh, the certifications themselves, I think, uh, uh, the, I mean, in, in the real world, it's, we're not going to medical school when we go to get certified. Okay? Right, right. We go to a two or three or four day seminar. Right. And, um, uh, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the mall cop. You know, he doesn't get a gun for a good reason. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, just because you, you, you went to some, some minimal training, it, it doesn't in and of itself make you a super qualified person. And just because you speak with great confidence and certainty doesn't mean that you necessarily know what you're talking about. So I will say this. This is something when I do a little bit of teaching, I always like to start my, 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 my teaching, my instruction with something like raise your right hand and repeat after me. Uh, I state your name. I, I, swear, I, I solemnly swear that nothing I take here will be taken back to my business and screw it up, okay? And that I will with great skepticism listen to everything that Howard says and I'll make sure that it's really correct at some point in the future. So when you hear and see things and read things, be certain that you're getting them from good sources of information. There are some great sources of information out there. Wood Handbook, uh, Understanding Wood by Hoadley, Identifying Wood by Hoadley, and then some other more obscure things that uh, are not available out there. But those are the big, the big three when it comes to understanding wood. And, uh, um, and Hoadley got the, the ultimate title on that one um, with his Understanding Wood book, which is published by Taunton Press. And so uh, uh, that's, 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 if you really want to understand how wood functions, uh, buy that book and, and read it. It's a great book. And it's an easy read, too. And, and, and uh, he was my advisor in graduate school, and the guy is, was one of the best teachers I've ever encountered in my in my life. Cool. Um, I noticed when I read your CV, um, it was kind of bolded. You kind of called attention that you didn't renew uh, membership uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. I was just wondering, uh, you know, if you could comment on that, because I thought it was a little unusual. Well, um, I'd like to think I'm not terribly unusual. I, wanna, <laughs> I like to think of myself as being kind of average. Okay. And, uh, uh, but um, just some quick history. I went to work at NOFMA in 1978, and it was, at a, it was at a low point in the wood flooring industry, and I was the staff person at, at NOFMA that was, because I was the youngest guy there mm -hmm. at the time. And they, they, had they gave me the job of developing this industry training program okay. and so i got the again i knew nothing i mean this is <laughs> i mean i i i really had no experience or knowledge about any of this and so i basically had to learn it firsthand i developed the, the training the lesson plans and ran a school in memphis for three years while you know while before i left and went to another company 
And uh, one of the things that, that this fascinated me is that uh, uh, we didn't have any installation instructions. And then a committee at NOFMA, which was the only wood flooring trade association at the time, wrote something called the installation manual. And that installation manual became the industry standard. And that installation manual was instructional in character. In other words, this is the right way to do stuff. This is how you do it. A, B, C, D, E. And that was the character of industry standards up until 2007, 2008, 2009. So NOFMA was founded in, two, in 1909 in Chicago, moved to Memphis sometime in the teens, and then had been continuous operation for 99 years. And in two, the 2007-2008 financial crisis killed the construction business and the, the, the people who supported NOFMA with their dues just simply couldn't afford the association anymore and they basically shut it down. And so when they shut it down, the, the, the new big envelope association called NWFA, of which I was a charter member, uh, they took over all of the uh, they, all of the functioning of NOFMA, they basically uh, took the records and hired some of the people and moved them up to St. Louis. And then in 2008, 2009, after NOFMA was out of, out of existence, it was essentially absorbed into the larger organization, mm -hmm. they made a change to the installation guidelines where they went from the instructional model to the um, um, to the, I, I'm going to be a little inflammatory here. That's they true. went, they went to the Bohica model. Okay. I got it. I know. Okay. Go and so, uh, for those of you that don't know what Bohica means, you can Google it and it'll tell you what it means. Okay. Bend over. Here it comes again. That's it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. And so essentially they, they transitioned over to assigning responsibility to the installer for everything that happens on a job site. So something that prior to that point would be what have been negotiated contract by contract became an industry standard. And I objected to that. I thought that was, uh, I thought that if someone was going to assign me responsibility for the job site, it shouldn't be my own trade association. Right. Okay? It, it shouldn't be the people I pay dues to. Uh, I pay these people to do what's best for me. Right. And, and I didn't understand why they were making me responsible for everything that happened on the job. Things that really were not in my control. Understood. Because the subcontractor doesn't control the job. So I tried for a number of years to affect the, to kind of reverse the change and, um, I was unsuccessful. My political skills are not the greatest. <laughs> and so uh, after, in 2013, I just decided that uh, since I wasn't able to get a change, I would, I just wasn't going to participate as a member. I still love, I still love trade associations. I, I still love the concept. I think this one glaring weakness in, in the guidelines, this 
this blaming the flooring contractor for everything that happens uh, is, I think, very flawed. I think it, it should be changed, uh, and it it puts people in the liability chain that should never be there. Do you think that um, the consensus process was responsible for that, or do you think there was, you know, some other issue that was responsible for that? Well, consensus is a monster. Uh, it's responsible for a lot of poor thinking. Okay, I won't go into detail. I mean, a lot of our general trends in society are a matter of consensus. Uh, uh, passion is a matter of consensus. If people don't agree on on buying, wearing their hats backwards, then it's not in fashion. And so to me, scientific facts are not really developed by consensus. Just because a bunch of us agree that up is down and down is up and right is left and left is right doesn't make it so. Um, um, it's a simply uh, just getting agreement in a in a group or in a political so, uh, uh, setting. I don't think really drives factual. It doesn't drive facts, and it doesn't drive science, and it doesn't drive uh, statistics. So uh, I, I'm just not a big believer in uh, most of the people that make these really breathtaking discoveries about. Um, uh, the uh, about any scientific principle are basically fighting the the current consensus, and it takes decades, sometimes generations, to overcome the inertia of the world is flat, that kind of thing. So I'm not a big consensus guy. I think consensus is great. You know, uh, what color are we going to paint the living room? Their consensus is important. Right. Uh, you know, what are we going to have for dinner? Right. You know, we have, but, but, you know, uh, what, you know, what does the temperature 75 degrees mean? In other words, <laughs> when we have a thermometer, right. uh, you can call it 42, but if you're using a centigrade scale, it means one thing. If you're using a Fahrenheit scale, it means another thing. If you're using a Kelvin scale, means something totally different. It's the same temperature, but it, it's, got a, it's got a very strong relative uh, uh, reference that is, is, is based in a, of certainty. And consensus doesn't develop certainty. Do you think that um, the consensus, again, I'm unfamiliar with exactly what happened with the, the second round of trying to put together this guidance for flooring installers. But, you know, one of the things that seems to happen when standards are meant to be international, you know, whether it's under ANSI or ASTM or, you know, these other standards of organizations, and I'm not sure whether this particular standard, the second one that you were talking about is or is not, but it seems that when they put these standards together, they get these different groups of special interests and 
so besides having the special interest of installers, they may have a special interest of manufacturers that make the flooring and ad adhesive companies. And they're trying to represent the interests of all these different people and trying to get consensus. And I think that's, that seems to me where these things get screwed up. Uh, you know, going back to the original model that you had that protected uh, installers, uh, I agree with you. I think that's the way that it should be. And uh, I, I just wondered, that's why I kind of asked about the consensus process, whether okay. there were and other. I, I don't mean to be argumentative, Cliff, but the previous standard didn't protect anyone. Okay. It was, it was neutral. It was, okay. a, it, was a, it was a really neutral saying of this is what you do. If you're doing it correctly, you're going to do this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And it didn't say that if you didn't do it, you were a no good scum sucking scum sucker. Okay. Uh, it's just simply said that uh, this is the right way to do it. And this is how you would evaluate the quality of a, of a good quality installation. Now, um, um, there are, th in other words, there's a defect in the building that becomes apparent after, you know, six months or a year, but it was obvious that the defect was there even before the installation. Under the current guidelines, that's a responsibility of the installer. The installer. Uh, right. So um, I think that I would prefer to see the guidelines and the installation standards, the wood flooring industry standards, go back to becoming neutral. Right. And uh, 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 and this is this is what this is what we recommend is the minimum standard. Uh, this is how many fasteners you should use. This is the moisture content levels, and 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 have things that are quantifiable so they can be measured. What is the, the current lexicon is, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so amorphous and uh, non-specificity are not uh, ways of developing um, measurable, quantifiable standards. And uh, I think, you know, it's it, either it is or it isn't. It's not, uh, when I was in college, okay, I was, I was the editor of my newspaper, my college newspaper. And um, I wrote a column, because I was the editor, I got to write whatever I wanted to. <laughs> and so there was a column that I wrote, uh, which was a sign of the times. Uh, and it was, and the title of my column was Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. And basically, I just blathered on about whatever, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was not scientific, okay? And so, um, uh, uh, you know, shades of gray are great about, you know, talking about subjects that are, uh, are, are not quantifiable, you know. Uh, uh, you know, whether this, this fruit is better than that fruit, you know, we all have different taste buds, but, you know, when you're counting the number of apples in a barrel, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a number there. There's no, you know, I say it's 22 and you say it's 23 and neither one of us is right because there's all these shades of gray, right? Right. Uh, there's actual things that are quantifiable. And uh, uh, I think that that's, 
the important thing to understand is that everything isn't negotiable. Mm -hmm. Everything isn't a matter of who agrees on it. Some things are right. Some things are wrong. Some things are black. Some things are white. And just because you want to make up a different name for it doesn't make it, doesn't change the nature of what's happening. Understood and well said. And I think I want to move over to Pete and uh, give him an opportunity to ask a question. Howard, can you stick around for another five, ten minutes? Sure can. We're running a little over. Let's go to the roundup, John. All right. We're going to do the roundup. But uh, let's start with Pete Consigli. Pete. The Restoration Global Watchdog. I, I liked it when we had the rawhide music, but I guess we got it to trademark our uh, copyright. <laughs> yeah, uh, we got to be a little you know, careful. Roll them up, round them out. You know, um, Howard, I said, I love this. I love this part of the deal. You know, this uh, this last part talking about the historical stuff, really the the business of hardwood versus the trade of hardwood. But quite frankly, Howard, everything that you talked about can be applied. You know, all the stuff with the uh, Nafman and NFWA, et cetera, views on consensus and standards and all of that, that all can be applied to any industry. And, um, you know, while you were talking on some of that, we had, a little, we had a little lively chat going here with a lot of the participants in the show talking about associations and standards and whatnot. So a couple things. The first thing is standards in general, any consensus-based standards are, are what are, are their base, the base minimum requirement. That's just, it's the lowest level of competency. That's just how it is by process. Unfortunately, many people believe that that's like the state of the art. You know, any good attorney will tell you, you should never use words like that anyway. It's just going to get you in trouble. Um, I think that the... Uh, um, the whole process of uh, associations in general are places where people go to uh, do together what they can't do alone. And it's really the big picture stuff, Howard. I mean, it really resonated with me. The one thing that you said in the entire show that resonated with me as a watchdog more than anything is that you have your own association where you're paying dues who are essentially trying to put all the liability on the installers. Yeah. I mean, that makes no sense. So the way that people um, send that message is either they don't pay their dues or a lot of members will pay their dues because they want to support an industry. But what happens is they don't engage. And when you can't get the most passionate members and the most skilled and knowledgeable members of the association to be on the committees to engage in the process, that can kill association maybe even quicker and people who just pay their dues because dues essentially usually cover just general overhead to, to run, the, run the organization. So uh, I think when I look at our industry now and some of the things we're doing, um, you know, it's, uh, it's good that the industry is trying to work uh, better for the greater good. You know, it's not perfect and never will be, but, you know, it's a dichotomy, just like you said, even though you didn't pay your dues, you still love associations and things they do, what they represent, et cetera. Um, you know, when you talked about your the little the putting the hand up like that before your training, you know, Marty King, who anyone who listened to the show or any of the restorers knows, was, 
you know, one of the early founders of the restoration, he used to start every seminar by saying this, no one of the heads knows more than all of the heads. And, you know, Steebrook Steve used to start out his seminars back in the day by saying 90% of what he tells you, he said you could take to the bank, said the other 10% is BS and your, your job is to figure out the 10%. <laughs> you know, years later I asked him and he said, he, he, was, he got it down to 5%, you know. Um, but that was a very powerful statement that Marty said because I think the best trainers in the industry are the ones that allow that, you know, Mickey Lee was on there. Mickey, I, I would love to give Mickey a shout out. Mickey always takes a, a strategy when he's involved in training and leading the room that he helps facilitate the knowledge in the room. Those are may not his exact words, but any good trainer knows that they learn as much from the audience. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's an old folklore that says, uh, you know, Einstein in a, in a room with 20 people from the general population, the 20 might know more than he did. I don't know whether that's folklore or not, but um, I think the old the older guys start to recognize that, that they learn as much as if they can pass on. Um, you know, yeah, you have some very interesting uh, viewpoints, which experience has taught you uh, on consensus and standard setting. I remember you were very outspoken in Dublin about that, and it really kind of caught my attention. I also think that you have uh, either unknowingly, Howard, you have set the table for the for the sixth show that we'll have in a few weeks with the the next moister mobster, which is going to be Roland Vieira, an inspector who gets involved in, you know his 40 years of all these uh, different projects and things he looks at and um, too much stuff is blamed on the installers and uh, you know, people want to shirk the responsibility. So it'll be real interesting to, to kind of see, uh, see how Roland kind of addresses that. Um, but anyway, uh, I think it was, it's a very great, a good show, Howard. I, I appreciated uh, you know, your honesty, particularly in the second half of the show, but, you know, just getting into the technical aspect of, the things that you talked about early on. I mean, you spend a whole day just talking about those things, but I think you, you did a really great job of the, uh, you know, kind of capturing a lot of key points that people need to pay attention to. And uh, anyway, appreciate it. And I, I think our listeners did. I'm looking forward to the blog. Cliff, I always look forward to Cliff's blog. He takes those notes like a madman. And, uh, you know, he knows how to capture the pearls in the blog. So anyway, um, I'll throw it back to you, Joe and Cliff. I, I, right. I don't really have much to ask Howard. I mean, Howard, I think I uh, appreciate his, uh, you know, just his bluntness and just addressing the point, the, the things from his viewpoint. And I think that's what matters. It's never a matter of right or wrong. People have different views and you know, just listen to them. That's how we learn. So, anyway. well, thank you, Pete. We appreciate you joining us and also helping to gather this esteemed group of moisture mobsters looking forward to the sixth one. But Howard, I, I just want to mention that the, the first half, I, I thought it was a great primer for people either already in the industry or coming into the industry. Just learn a little bit more about the technical aspects of flooring and, and wood and wood flooring and, you know, concrete and so on. And I, I really appreciated it. And I think a lot of people will learn for years to come from that. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything we've missed? Well, um, I, I, I particularly enjoyed something that Pete just said. He was talking about minimum standards, so forth and so on. It's been my experience that the minimum standard becomes the gold standard. Okay. 
And essentially, uh, I've always kind of objected to putting out a minimum standard. Uh, I think when we develop a standard, it should be what is the best way to do something. In other words, what, what works 100% of the time? What is the absolute best way to do something? And uh, what's going to give you a, a zero deviation from a quality product? And I think that being said, um, if you want to go a little bit below that, you just have to realize that you increase your risk of having some issue or defect or failure. And so, uh, uh, like I said, I, I understand that not everybody is able to build the very finest quality product. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a construction site and the GC kind of sidles over towards me and says, Brickman, we're not building a watch. Get it done. <laughs> hey, Joe, Joe, you uh, know. Yes, please. I think um, I think one of the things that Howard maybe was alluding to when we were talking about standards, and this may lend to this uh, little the little chat that Don Weeks brought up about having a show on the different types of standards, but really a performance-based standard versus a procedural-based. And right. a lot of the low-tech industries, they start out with the procedural stuff, which is a minimum standard, right? Yeah. And they want to lay out every step-by-step. Step. But Howard, early on uh, in the interview, you talked about, uh, which I agree with, it really was performance-based language where tell me, look, uh, how many, uh, don't tell me exactly how many nails and where, but tell me where do we need to end up and then let us decide how we're going to do it. And I've long held that in restoration, I think the industry has gotten to the point now after 35, 40 years where our standards should be moved more towards performance-based versus line by line exactly how to extract something, how to dry something, et cetera. That's what, essentially what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, you say performance, I say outcome. So yeah. I, think, I think essentially we need to have a standard that says this is what, this is what the product should look like and perform and performance. This is how things should work and look after you're done. And uh, that, that being said, uh, uh, I think that's an excellent way. When I work for my consulting clients, my developer customers, that hire me to help them with their projects. I write an outcome standard. I don't write a, uh, uh, an instructional standard. In other words, I develop a specification that says, this is what the product should look like and this is how it should perform. And you're responsible to get that done. And uh, at some point later, I may write instructions that are step-by-step. Step. But um, one of the things I see uh, subcontractors and contractors doing is they fall back on, well, we followed your directions and uh, look, it didn't work. And, you know, it's, it's, I think the other thing is that outcomes are the important thing. Uh, it's, it's not whether you made a good effort and oops, didn't work. I mean, this is not a game of volleyball. Uh, this is about getting it done and getting it done correctly. And, uh, uh, and really, we're not looking for a 70% success rate. We're looking for a 100% success rate. You're going to get that customer what they paid for. Howard, before we go real quick, uh, are you still teaching? And, and if so, how would people get involved in a class you're involved with? 
Uh, I do some teaching uh, through two organizations. One is the International Wood Flooring Association. We do some training. It's mainly very advanced stuff. Uh, and then I also uh, work with um, the Floor Inspectors Education Guild. And so uh, I will teach one or two things a year on that. So, uh, uh, so if people and 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 both of those organizations put out some pretty good training uh, that I think would be very helpful to just about anybody. We'll see if we can get Cliff to put that in the blog. And thank you so much again for joining us this week on IAQ Radio Plus. Howard Brickman, great job. Got a lot of nice comments from people here on the text. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest. Also, thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, and, of course, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Uh, no, no flips today, John. Looking good. Um, I, we'll be back next Friday at noon. We've got Tony Havocs joining us. We're going to go back to the COVID, talk a little bit about coronavirus, personal protective equipment, disinfection, uh, just establishing protocols, etc. So that, that should be a great job, Tony. If uh, most of our listeners know, has been on the show a few times and is uh, well respected in the industrial hygiene arena. Also, uh, want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.